0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, we just went through a whole election cycle. And once again, Virginia served as something of a bellwether for national political trends. Which means that Virginia now is a testing ground for America's culture wars. And that testing ground is getting pretty testy. The school board meetings in Loudoun County pushes to ban racially divisive books in schools. Policies targeting trans kids. And conservatives have been pointing to a particular concept in all of these debates. So-called parents' rights. Governor Glenn Youngkin talks a lot about parents' rights. During his campaign last year, he latched onto parents' rights and rode that all the way to victory over Terry McAuliffe. Other Republican candidates across the country have taken note. And during the midterms, a bunch of GOP candidates have declared themselves strong supporters of moms and dads. I mean, it's a clever tactic. Who isn't a supporter of parents? Or families? That slipperiness is part of the appeal. And there are some legitimate reasons for parents to be upset. You know, keeping schools closed during the pandemic did mitigate the spread of COVID, but it was extremely difficult for working parents juggling childcare, And the sharp decline in learning outcomes left a lot of parents worried about their kids' future. But Republicans have been relying on parents' rights to justify all sorts of things. For one, the Yunkin administration has proposed model policies for school districts, and these explicitly target transgender kids. Then there's critical race theory, or the anti-vaccine rhetoric. These all get chalked up to parents' rights. That catch-all phrase, parents' rights, is being used much more broadly than its actual legal precedent. When it comes to parents' rights, Republicans typically cite a 2013 law that stemmed from a court ruling regarding sperm donors and custody issues. So how did we get from a case about in vitro fertilization to parents' rights being the basis for all sorts of stuff? And what does Yunkin's rhetoric portend for the political future? That's what we're exploring today, and we're going to get some help from Becca Saxon. She's a UNISERV director at the Virginia Education Association. She explains how parents' rights have been weaponized to defend Youngkin's transgender policies and how that rhetoric erodes trust in public education, which advances the interests of charter schools. But first, we speak with Graham Mumaw. He's a statehouse reporter for Virginia Mercury, and he traces the origins of parents' rights in Virginia, the role it played in Youngkin's campaign, and where this all may lead in the future.
1: There was a Supreme
0: Court of Virginia ruling
1: in 2013. It's sort of half true that it had to do with sperm donors, but it's kind of a complicated story. So there's this guy named William Breit, who was in a long-term relationship with a a woman who was his long-term partner. They had wanted to have a child. They were unable to conceive naturally, so they went through an assisted conception process. They broke up, I believe, like a year after the child was born and I think she didn't want anything to do with him. She said, you know, you're not going to have visitation rights. This is my child. And because of kind of a quirk in state law where the law was written so the sperm donor can't come in and claim rights for a child that they have nothing to do with, you have to be married to the mother in order to be considered a legal parent of the child. So that caused a problem for this guy because, you know, they were just in a long-term relationship, they were a couple, but they were not married. So his efforts to get joint custody of this child were kind of stymied in the courts because of this law. They said, sorry, you're not married to her, therefore, we're going to treat you more as a sperm donor than as the legal father. And he took that, his case, all the way up to the Supreme Court of Virginia, and they overruled the lower courts and said, no, this is not fair that just because you chose not to be married, you don't lose the bond that you have with your biological child, one that was very much wanted, that you wanted to be a part of their life. And it was in response to that ruling that the General Assembly passed a very simple statute that says a parent has a fundamental right to make decisions concerning the upbringing, education, and care of the parent's child. And that basically just restates a common law principle that has been understood long before the law was passed, just that parents do have just a fundamental right to make decisions about raising their child to be a successful adult. That's that's just part of the, the rights of being a parent. What was interesting about the way the law was debated in 2013 was a lot of Democrats said this is going to have unintended consequences because even though it might sound, you know, just completely normal and innocuous to say parents have rights, it could complicate the way courts operate because parents' rights are not unlimited. There are boundaries, you know, abuse happens, neglect happens. There is a legal process for terminating parental rights Um, In 2021, I think that process was initiated over 2,000 times. There were over 5,000 cases of abuse and neglect. And Democrats' concerns was that this is kind of putting a thumb on the scale, saying that courts have to just do what parents want, whether it is or isn't in the best interests of the child. Um, And the Republican response at the time was, we're not trying to dramatically change anything. This is just kind of restating what the... Both the state Supreme court and the U S Supreme court have kind of held over decades, and it was just more of a symbolic instruction to the courts that we think parents' rights matter and should be respected, but with an understanding that that's not, it's not hundred percent. There are limits to parents' rights. So that's just kind of the backstory and why, ha- you know, this coming back today, I don't think it has had a major legal impact yet, but because it's being pointed to more and more as a talking point, it could in the future.
2: Mm, yeah and that was one of my other questions was, as Yunkin, during his campaign and also as Governor, he has used parents' rights to talk about like covid or masking policies or what is being taught in schools. So I'm curious how would you say that this understanding of parents' rights has differed from how it's been traditionally understood?
1: Well, it's hard because I think it means two very different things, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. I think the Yunkin people would say. When they talk about parents' rights, they are talking about legitimate frustration that a lot of parents have over what happened in COVID with the schools being shut down, that being a pretty big inconvenience to parents who had to suddenly, you know, find something to do with their kids all day. And they, you know, they argue all the time that a lot of parents, once they kind of got a glimpse, a window into what was going on in schools through virtual learning, they were not happy about what they heard. The argument is that a lot of them You know, heard things about race or gender or sexual orientation and kind of came to the conclusion that schools were emphasizing those issues over more bread and butter of reading, writing, and arithmetic, just teaching kids the basics. But I think when a lot of Democrats hear the word parents' rights, they see it as just kind of a new brand for traditional family values, social conservatism. And they see a lot of it, you know, it being used as a talking point in a lot of these debates as just trying to steer schools into being more culturally conservative, even if it means banning books, or being unable to teach kids that systemic racism exists, or acknowledging the existence of LGBTQ people in classrooms. So I think it's hard to really say what the political impact is, because it's really just a talking point that I think means very different things to two different sides.
2: Mm, Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm curious, like, is this politicalization politi- of the idea of parents' rights? Is this, this coined by Yunkin or has this been used in the past?
1: Parents' rights as a legal concept is old. I mean, there's been Supreme Court cases going back decades and decades and decades that hinge on the idea of parents' rights. But I think it being used as a political campaign issue is fairly new. I mean, you're seeing a lot of Republicans even in the midterms today, they think Yunkin, you know, Blazed a trail here, and they are talking about parents' rights and talking up how much parents matter. But there are clear echoes of just you know more basic family values, conservatism. The bill in 2013 that enshrined this parents' rights language into law was very much pushed by the Family Foundation, which is like the big time anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, anti-LGBTQ advocacy organization here in Richmond. So. It's new as just from a branding perspective. It is not new from a legal perspective.
2: How much of a role did using the rhetoric of parents' rights play in Youngkin's success?
1: I think clearly Republicans think it it made a difference because they wouldn't be using it in all these campaigns all across the country. Otherwise, it's a hard thing to measure because, you know, critical race theory, the whole issue of critical race theory is kind of wrapped up in this, that Parents just need to be able to reassert control over out-of-control school curriculums and things like that. But it, it's hard to really tell how much of, when Youngkin said parents rights, is he speaking to you know diehard Fox News watchers who are really upset about critical race theory who may or may not even have kids? Or is he speaking to the real frustrations of parents who still have some lingering dissatisfaction with with school closures and covid shutdowns. I think there's probably an element of truth to both. It can mean a lot of different things to different audiences. But I think from the Republican perspective, they clearly think it made a it made a difference else, you know, like I said they wouldn't be kind of using it as their national playbook in the midterm elections.
2: Mm, yeah, yeah, and I was curious what about <clears throat> that framing and rhetoric has has snagged the attention of all these candidates across the US. Like what does this framing achieve maybe for the GOP?
1: I think it does capture the frustration over COVID. It's kind of both new and old, if that makes sense. It's it's a nod to to so just general social conservatism on what kids should be learning in school. And also just I think there are parents who do feel a little bit disempowered or frustrated by the way the pandemic went. So I think part of its power is it is such a broad term that can mean sort of whatever you want it to mean. And it just, it sounds obvious on, it, on its face that parents matter, that I think that's that's the value in it. But, you know, the other side is obviously that it is it is so vague that when they say parents matter, what they're talking about, a certain type of parent, a socially conservative parent, it is not just respecting the wishes of of all types of parents and trying to make sure that schools work for all types of families as opposed to just one type.
2: You touched on this a little bit already. Like what has been maybe the role of Democrats in this? There were kind of seen to be the main drivers behind closing schools for such a long period of time during COVID, which did put a strain on lots of families. Like where do you think their role comes into the um, rise of the popularity of this road?
1: I think some Democrats would probably acknowledge now that erring on the side of caution and shutting down schools might have been a mistake, especially now that we're seeing all these the stats come out about learning loss and how it's going to take kids a long time just to catch up on the years of education that they kind of missed or were getting just lackluster schooling. But I think others would, would tell you, look, we were just trying to keep to prevent people from dying. We didn't know what the situation was going to be. We didn't know when a new variant was going to come. We are looking out for the most vulnerable kids and Therefore, just protecting life mattered more to us than just giving in to angry parents, if that makes sense. And I, I think the first real legal impact that this has had, there there has been a lawsuit over should parents have full control over deciding whether their kid should or shouldn't wear a mask in school. And at the ACLU sued, I think, on grounds that it violated the Americans with Disabilities Act, that if you give parents full discretion, you are discriminating against parents and families of kids who might have a condition that makes them uniquely vulnerable to COVID. By saying no no mask mandates, you just have to let each parent decide for themselves, you might be eliminating the school's ability to follow the ADA by saying, okay, if we have a kid who has unique medical needs in a specific classroom, we should be able to have a mask mandate, a limited mask mandate just for that particular class to protect that particular child. I'm not exactly sure where that lawsuit ended up, but I think Democrats would point to that and say that is what they mean when there are are limits to parents' rights. It can't just be a free-for-all. Every parent gets to decide for their own kid because there are circumstances where there is a clash between parents' rights and other types of rights.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. And I feel like that also kind of touches on how, as it's being used right now, It's creating this idea of like parents as this cohesive identity when there's so many different interests at stake and people are coming from so many different um, perspectives and backgrounds. It's interesting how it's being used as this idea of there's this kind of like group with a common interest when it's not that simplified.
1: And I, I, I don't know that Democrats have really come up with like an effective counter narrative to that. You just look at who is talking about parents and we are on the side of parents like, You hear the Republicans talking about it more. I do think, you know, coming up with some sort of counter narrative that like we are also on the side of parents and here's why and here's like the caveats we have. Here's how we're different from the Republicans on this issue. I think that probably would help them out as opposed to just ceding the talking point entirely to Republicans.
2: Mm, Yeah. Have you been seeing much of that kind of response by Democrats in this election cycle or...
1: Not so much in the elections. I think on the on the, the debate over transgender students in schools and what the policies should be, I think you are hearing a much stronger counter-argument from Democrats that when you're talking about parents' rights, you were specifically not thinking about the parents of transgender students there, because their interests and their rights are going to be very different from the parents who might be against trans inclusive policies in schools so you need a balancing act to make sure you're respecting all parents so i think they have sort of found their voice maybe a little bit on that issue but as far as just a broader cohesive argument about here's what democrats want to do to make sure parents feel like they have a say i'm not sure that they have arrived at that message yet
2: Mm, yeah that kind of like comes to one of my final questions is like how effective do you think this will be like where do you think this idea of parents rights how do you think it will take shape in american politics
1: i mean i think as a political talking point you know there's always kind of like a hot hot topic of the day that kind of ebbs and flows and i think the further we get away from the pandemic and some of the culture war battles of the day you know i don't i don't know that it'll be sort of a sustained thing where every election cycle candidates are getting a question about where they stand on parents rights but i think From a legal perspective, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions that we're going to have to see how they play out in the court, specifically on the transgender students policies. There is a lawsuit in Harrisonburg right now where a conservative group is pointing to Virginia's law specifically to say that any policy where the schools kind of keep a secret that a kid has transitioned at school violates that law. That lawsuit was heard, I believe, last week, and there should be a ruling coming up fairly soon. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch what kind of balancing act the courts strike in figuring out some of these kind of new issues where there have not been rulings to show, do the parents' rights outweigh the rights of the student in that case, or, or does the student's rights, is that more important than what their parent wants? So I think like just over the last century, really, this has kind of evolved through the courts case after case after case, the courts are going to have to step in and just figure out what does parents' rights actually mean for each one of these specific issues.
0: Graham Mumo is a statehouse reporter for Virginia Mercury. After a short break, we're going to see how this rhetoric plays out in Yunkin's model policies for Virginia school districts. Becca Saxon explains its effects on trans kids and what Yunkin's larger motivations might be. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, let us know. We're looking for episode ideas. Shoot us an email at bolddominion@virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective. Online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from The Collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Welcome back. We turn now to Becca Saxon. She's a Uniserve director at the Virginia Education Association. And she walks us through how parents' rights are playing out in Governor Yunkin's transgender policies for schools.
3: In 2020, the General Assembly passed a law that said that all school systems had to adopt model policies on how to treat transgender students. And that would include name changes, bathroom access, sports team participation, and then uh, what pronouns a student would use and the process by which all of that would happen. There was a lot of pushback. Most school systems did not pass the policy So, Youngkin, you know, he won, he says, uh, with a mandate from parents to change how we handle parental rights. And so now he has introduced a different set of policies that require students to use the restroom of the sex they were assigned at birth, and requires that the only way you can use different pronouns or change a student's name is if the parent gives you permission to do so. And what we have been finding is that oftentimes children do not yet feel comfortable talking to their parents and have found an an adult at school or someplace else in the community that is a trusted adult that they feel comfortable disclosing to first. And if the real goal is always to get the child to be comfortable disclosing to their parents. But, you know, in the meantime, as a stopgap, that teachers will affirm the child because it has been found that even having one adult affirm a child's identity reduces the risk of suicidality substantially. And so this is really about trying to save children's lives while getting them to a place where they feel comfortable either disclosing to their parents or where they are no longer dependent on their parents for their safety and their shelter.
2: Parents and parents' rights themselves are invoked many, many times in both Mm -hmm. the policies themselves and also in the comments that Youngkin made about them. For instance, I have like a quote where he was saying that protecting parents' fundamental rights to make decisions for their children is in the Virginia Code, and I fully expect that each one of the school divisions should comply. So I was curious why do you think that Yunkin is using this framing here? And do you feel like this rhetoric of parents' rights has maybe somehow helped the reception of these policies? So, I, I mean, I think that
3: what we're seeing is that this has been, in his mind, a winning strategy for the Republican Party, and that that's why he won. Now, I think what The reality is, if you dig deep enough into the demographics, he won not because of parents voting for him, but grandparents voting for him. And so, um, you know, people talked about the red wave. It was really more of a silver wave. And so, I mean, I personally think he's doing this to position himself for a run for president. I don't really think he cares about the consequences for kids. I don't think he cares about, you know, on either side, on any side, I don't think he cares about what it does for the trans kids. I don't think he really cares about what it does for his head kids either. He just knows that this was, a, in his mind, a winning issue and a great way to position himself as being the right kind of conservative for a run for president. I do think that fundamentally the idea of, well, of course, parents have a right to make decisions for their kids like that. As a parent myself, that rings true to me as well. Like, yeah, you're right. I do want to be the person who makes the decisions for my kid. And if that meant that my kid needed to have access to gender affirming medical care and have their teachers affirm their gender, I would want that as well.
2: And so which parent has the rights here? When I was talking with the reporter Graham Muma, something that he mentioned is that some of the more longer-lasting impacts from this rhetoric, besides just maybe culture war talking points, is how it affects like the legal understanding of parents' rights. And he mentioned the current lawsuit that's between the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a conservative group that they brought against the Harrisonburg public schools. So. The idea being that the longer lasting issue here is whether Virginia courts will follow this trend and adopt this new politicized understanding of parents' rights. I'm curious, have you been following this? uh, Yes, yes. And
3: my understanding is that the original statute about parents' rights came into effect regarding artificial insemination and, you know, the ability to have custody of a child. Yes, we, yeah. we just, So we just, like that's a very narrow situation that they're now trying to blow up into a much bigger one. But interestingly, also got at a fundamental issue in many ways about how LGBTQ people entered into families and created their families. And now we are back to using that about how LGBTQ people are able to identify and develop and all of, you know, and so it's a very interesting idea that it's the same group of people who, and we are using that same statute as a bully pulpit and a way to, you know, to
2: harm them. That's fascinating. I I hadn't realized that line throughout those two issues. That's fascinating. Yeah. So obviously, there's been a lot of public backlash against these policies. There's been student walkouts, a lot of schools saying that they won't adopt these policies. I mean, you've mentioned that this isn't necessarily enforceable, like schools can choose to opt out of this. Do you expect many schools in the area to follow these policies?
3: So I suspect some will pass it very quickly. I mean, they've already made it clear that they're planning to and so I think that we will see some of the redder districts passing them, but I don't think Albemarle or Charlottesville is going to jump to pass a new a, a new policy on transgender students. But uh, my concern is that that creates a patchwork of safety for children and also for their parents. And so VHSL has been very clear. Their policy has been the same about who can participate in sports and how you participate in sports, but this is going to further isolate students who are going to say, well, why, you know, fine. So Charlottesville high school, let me play on the team that aligns with my gender. But when I go to Fluvanna." Or I go to, you know, Goochland, I could face harassment and intimidation and bullying from the fans there. And I don't want to put myself into that situation. So I'm just not gonna participate. Or a family that, you know, moves. I mean, it's gonna be the kids who are gonna be most at risk, are gonna be the ones whose families have the least economic stability and are most likely gonna, you know, are the more likely to need to move to live with grandma for a bit. And so I hate the idea that depending on where your family is residing at any given moment has an impact on how your humanity is recognized or not.
2: There's been a public comment period on the model policies. And then we're currently in uh, the review that's going on of those comments. And that lasts till about November 26th, I believe, when Mm -hmm. it says the laws will go into effect What do you think will come of this? Do you think there'll be any big revisions to these policies after the public comment period review or like, where do you think this is going to go?
3: I honestly, I think the bigger issue may be VHSL. So the high school league sets their own participation laws and always have. And so these model policies can't change VHSL policy. I mean, they would have to pass a law to change VHSL policy. I think the rest of it, I think Youngkin will go ahead with his proposal as it stands. I think there will be a lawsuit because this idea of we can tell you which bathroom to use is in direct opposition, not just to the law about transgender policies, but to the Virginia Values Act, to the human rights laws, all of that. Those are all in law. The Gavin Grimm case that was decided a number of years ago already says that you can't t- tell kids that they can't use the bathroom. Like that was a Supreme Court case. So this could ultimately be an attempt to get another case to the Supreme Court to see if the new court will overturn the old decisions. Like we just don't know what that's going to do, but I don't really see Yunkin changing his mind and saying, "Oh no,
2: we heard from everybody and we're going to go back to the old policies. I don't know if I'm going to articulate this question very well, but I'm something I'm curious about. Sometimes it feels like this creates such a binary in the debate where it's like either pro parents rights or if you're trying to prevent the implementation of these transgender policies, you're anti-parent. Like for you as a as being a part of the VEA, is it hard to kind of escape that binary? Like how do you how do you yeah, I'll no, that's
3: that. and that's definitely what people want. I mean, this is all a piece of the bigger picture of let's drive a wedge between parents and teachers so that people lose trust in the public schools so that people are more open to the idea of, you know, vouchers and charter schools and underfunding the schools even further than they're already being underfunded. It's all a bigger piece of a political strategy that has very little to do, honestly with trans students. They are just currently the wedge and the pawn that's being used. And I think that when we cut through the noise, we really do find that most parents are okay with what's happening with their child. And they might have thoughts about what's happening to somebody else's child. But I think that most parents, I mean, Most teachers want to work with the parents. Most parents want to work with the teachers and they have a shared common goal of the kids being successful and alive when they hit, you know, the age of 18.
0: That was Becca Saxon, a Uniserve director at the Virginia Education Association. Thanks to her and Virginia Mercury reporter, Graham Mumal for speaking with us today. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by the terrific Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.